Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. I recently finished writing and recording a series of lectures for the great courses on how technology is shaping how we think. Now, a lot of people have written about that topic, and you can probably already guess a number of ways in which your interactions with the internet and other technologies has essentially changed how you think. But what about materials? What are the big inventions, the big discoveries in terms of actual things that have changed humanity forever? That's what materials scientist and science communicator Anissa Ramirez has written about in her book, The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. In the book, she talks about eight different inventions, clocks, steel, copper communication cables, photographic film, light bulbs, hard disks, scientific labware, and silicon chips, and demonstrates the ways in which each of them has shaped the human experience. But she doesn't just stick to how materials were used by inventors. She talks about how those inventions then shaped our culture. Ramirez has had a prolific career. She's worked as a research scientist at Bell Labs and had academic positions at Yale University and MIT. She's also hosted her own podcast, and she's written for Time, Scientific American, American Scientist, and Forbes. Anissa Ramirez, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Oh, thank you. So um, somewhat bizarrely, I kind of want to start at the end of your book and the epilogue, where there are some things that you talk about that I found so compelling and that actually changed the way I approached the rest of the book. And, and in this epilogue, you quote Toni Morrison, and you talk about, and I'm not going to say it correctly, but it's something along the lines of, if there's a book that you want to read that hasn't been written, you should go and write it. Tell me about how that quote influenced the writing of this book. Well, imagine that Toni Morrison inspired a science book. She was just, she just transcended so many different fields. So uh, the reason why she inspired me is that, you know, I was looking for a book that was not only technical because I'm a material scientist, but wanted to put the material that I was studying in a context. What was the motivation for these inventors? What were the challenges that they had to overtake? You never really see that in books. And also, uh, lastly, what was the impact of their work? And, you know, I scrounged around and I would look for books that would 
maybe do one of those things or just kind of vestigially do another one of those things, and but never a full deep dive. And so I knew of this quote that if there's a book that you want to write or read and it hasn't been written yet, you've got to write it. And so that's what put me on this path of writing The Alchemy of Us. And in it, you actually unearth a lot of stories about people who haven't traditionally been credited for the kinds of inventions that you talk about. And so I I wondered, just as I was reading the epilogue, sort of how you were able to unearth those stories so vividly and what kind of was your research process in terms of making sure that those stories got told. Did you explicitly set out to tell these untold stories or did these people kind of pop up as you were doing research and you were like, huh, I'd never heard about you know that side of it before? <laughs> That's good. When I was in the uh, archives, I was my own barometer where if I read something and I was like, huh, or what? If I got that response, I was like, well, I need to pursue that. I also, when I was writing the book, I had a path, I had a book proposal of what I was going to write. But uh, as I was writing it, I actually stumbled onto a story that changed the book. The story that I stumbled onto is I was reading this really thick book about timekeeping. And I have to say it was a little on the dry side. And I was looking for a way to enter into this topic so that I would be interested and so that my readers would be interested. There was one sentence like two thirds of the way down. And it said there was a lady in England in the 19th century who sold time. And I was like, what? And I'm in the library, so everybody around me is looking to see what's going on. And I kind of look around just to make sure that people don't think it's me. And I found that there was this woman named Ruth Belville, and she was in the business of selling time because people didn't know the precise time and they needed to know it for their businesses. So she would travel to the Royal Observatory with her pocket watch and then bring the time to different businesses like banks and trains and things like that. When I saw that story, I was so intrigued. But also I said, you know what? I also was a little angry because I said, how is it that a woman that is so fascinating ends up just being one sentence in a Mm -hmm. a very thick book that no one would find except if they're really committed like myself? So that changed how I was going to write the book. Let's look for those people who haven't had their moment, the hidden figures, if you will, Mm -hmm. for technology so that they get their moment because they've done a lot in technology and we don't need to just keep talking about the same characters of Edison, Einstein. Let's look at these smaller characters or these lesser known characters and show how they've made an impact to our world. And yet that wasn't sort of when, as, as you describe in the epilogue, wasn't, the, wasn't how you first were, the experience that you were having where, you know, you, you were going over some of the same stories of the, you know, old white, dead white men that we all associate with these inventions. And so what was that like for you as, you know, uh, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> Well, I thought I could hang in there, you know, as an African-American woman who loves technology. I said, you know what? This is going to be great. I love tech and I love explaining science. You know, I I, I love doing that. I I love teaching. But then we got this specific administration came into play and it was it was surprising my response. I was like, I cannot write something where I am not in the book. I just can't. Mm -hmm. And I'm in the book in the way that I write it. But if I'm going to be talking about old white guys, I have to make them as human as possible so that we can see their failings and their failures. Because when you read these books, these biographies about many of these inventors, you know, they always just propel them as a genius. 
And I've looked at the original sources, the archives, the old papers, and I can see in a lot of cases, oh, this person was heartbroken. That's Samuel Morse in the development of the telegraph. A lot of people just say he was this genius. No, he was brokenhearted. Let's talk about that. That was his impetus. Uh, Henry Bessemer, he liked to make a lot of money. Let's just be honest about why he invented steel. So I really just put, I made it more real, more human so that people can really resonate with them. And then I also worked really hard to find stories of people who had more diverse backgrounds and of diverse de demographics, because again, I couldn't write a book where I wasn't in the book. And so has that changed the way that you, you know, think about what the future of science should look like in terms of who's doing it, uh, especially given that you spent, you know, part of your career, a big part of it in an, in a field in which women and people of color are grossly underrepresented, and, and that's material science. Right. Well, I've always said that we need more diversity, and I've been trying to attack the problem from different ways. Uh, when I was in academia, I tried to encourage more women and more students of color to be in, in material science and in my classes, and, and that worked. But that was very small scale. When I taught at mm -hmm. Yale, you know, maybe my a big class was 30 students, and maybe I get a handful of students. I, I didn't feel like this was going to make a huge impact. So I tried other ways. I said, well, let me speak be on the speaking tour. More people could see, uh, use me as a mentor or as a role model of what, what a scientist looks like. And that's been helpful. That's more, that's thousands of people. So that's good. That, feel, that feels mm -hmm. good. But I said, all right, what's another way that I can attack this puzzle of, of making science more inclusive? And I thought it was about unpacking myth. Who does science? What's their motivation? Who they are? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all know about Benjamin Franklin and the lightning bolt. And myths work because they give us a common language, but myths also don't work because they push out people because they don't see themselves. And so I said, well, I'm going to use this book, The Alchemy of Us, as a way to create new myths so that people feel that, oh, I can do science too, because this guy did, and he was no smarter than myself, or this woman did, and she just worked really hard, and I can do that. So that was kind of my approach. So let's get into some of the details of some of these. So you, you describe eight inventions. Let's start with the clocks and sort of, you know, because there's a lot of detail there, too, in terms of our own biological clocks and sort of how we keep time and what it means to keep time. But I wanted to start with the material of timekeeping, given that that is, you know, at least when you were in academia, your area of expertise. And so tell us about quartz and sort of why it's a, a material that has sort of changed the way we approach time. That's a very good question. Um, you know, for eons, we've been trying to keep time, you know, to monitor the course of the day. And what humanity was looking for was something that had a repeating pattern so that we can mark off the day. And the myth is that Galileo saw a, a pendulum swinging on a church ceiling. He used his pulse to measure if it was a regular period, and he saw that it was. And he said, okay, well, I'm going to use this pendulum as a way to build a clock. That was what humanity needed, because before that, we measured time by, you know, sand, an hourglass, or water clocks. But what we needed was, if I want to know precisely the time, I needed a pattern. And so the pendulum came first. And then there were small springs that could be moved in and out to make smaller clocks. But to uh, have a very precise clock, that's where quartz came in. And quartz has this unusual behavior that most people don't know about, that if you put it in an electrical circuit, it will wiggle a lot. It will wiggle like 10,000 or 100,000 times per second. 
And so what you can do is you can measure those wiggles and use that as your pattern to measure time. And so I talk about in The Alchemy of Us about a gentleman named uh, Warren Marison who figured that out, who, who created this new form of timekeeping, and he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Uh, so I just said, okay, Warren, I am going to bring your story to life because if you look at old clocks or old watches, you may see the face and it says quartz. That's Warren Marison's work. He's been on everybody's wrist for eons, but nobody knows about it. So that's the unusual thing about quartz. It has this strange behavior. It's actually called piezoelectricity, or it's a piezoelectric material. And that just means that it's a fancy way to see that if electricity is linked to mechanical motion. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And it makes me wonder too, like, did you feel compelled then to start Wikipedia pages for some of these people? <laughs> no, you know? I, I just said, let me write this really, really well. Mm -hmm. And I will give someone uh, motivation. And I have in the back of the Alchemy of Us, uh, an annotated bibliography if people want more information. Because I said, there's too many things that I can do. I need to write this mm -hmm. book. I could do a Wikipedia page. I said, well, write the book. And then if you have time, go back or motivate some folks to to fill in yeah. those blanks. Yeah. So in your chapter on clocks, you talk about how, you know, the ability to keep time has sort of changed uh, fundamentally human behavior. And that's one of the things that I, I really loved about your book is that in each of these inventions, you talk about this alchemy that, you know, it, it's more than just the sum of the parts, you know, it sort of changes the fundamental nature of who we are. Can you tell us a little bit, you know, a couple of examples of how, you know, these invent this particular invention clocks has sort of changed our behavior and you know, I think it's particularly relevant in today's world where time has suddenly slowed down and taken on a different <laughs> meaning. <laughs> well, time, as they say, is the most used word. So it's very important to us. But time became part of our culture where we were all wanted to be punctual and use time wisely. There's a whole range. I, in the book, I list all these words with time in it, in, their, in its etymology. And they all kind of came around in the 1800s. This is when time became very important to us. And so the notion of keeping time and making good time and uh, all these things was that we wanted to use our time wisely. And one of the things that uh, this desire to be punctual and to be efficient with time actually impacted how we sleep. If you look at life before the Industrial Revolution, people would turn in around nine o'clock, they would sleep for about three and a half hours, wake up for about an hour, do some things around the house, read, go talk to their neighbors who are also up, and then after, after that hour, go back to sleep for another three and a half hours. This was called segmented sleep. And each one of those segments were called first sleep and second sleep. And if you look at old books, Don Quixote, the Aeneid, Pickwick Papers, they all say first sleep. So this is the way that people used to sleep. But after we, uh, uh, after clocks became part of our culture, well, that, those two segments became consolidated also, because of the artificial lights, we pushed back the time that we went to bed. So what used to be a couple of hours maybe reduced to about five hours, which is what most Americans sleep now. So the, before the Industrial Revolution, segmented sleep existed. By the 20th century, it was completely gone. And one of the factors was timekeeping. The next invention that you talk about, which kind of builds on this first one, is steel. And what I found really fascinating is that, you know, I think of steel as, you know, hearkening in the industrial age, allowing us to, you know, see each other by building the railways, etc. But you also make the point that it actually 
changed our culture <laughs> in some fundamental ways. So I wondered if you could just give us a sense of the importance of steel and what are some what were some of the super fascinating kind of tidbits that led you to this conclusion that it's actually had a huge influence on our culture? Sure. Well, the the chapter on steel, chapter two, is actually the first chapter that I wrote. And it makes sense from a material science point of view, because steel is a very important material that all textbooks about material science will have. And as I was reading these old material science books, I was like, okay, this is great. You're showing me how to make steel. It's a combination of iron and carbon, but there's a, a huge transformation that the material that's made when iron and carbon are combined is actually very different than just a solution. It's like a new material is created. And because of it, it's super hard and super tough. And so you're able to make these rails that can survive trains running on them for 18 years, as opposed to if it was just iron by itself, which would last about two years. And with these super strong rails, you can now have a dependable uh, transportation system and you can move people and then you can move product. And now that you have a transportation infrastructure that's that's solid, well, you can now rely on it and start moving products regularly. So the economy was built on that. And then people started saying, you know what, we can really do really well with this economy if we had more gift giving happening, you know, products moving from one end to the other using this transportation. So if you look at old songs, Christmas carols, you, you can see that there was an evolution from it just being a time with family to a gift giving occasion. And so what I say in The Alchemy of Us is that the commercialization of Christmas took place because of steel rails. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's amazing to think that these two things that seem so disparate really are connected in this way. So speaking of connection, the next chapter really is about the telegraph. And so tell us a little bit about, you know, sort of the invention of the telegraph and sort of how those materials influenced the fact that now we could communicate with each other 
across vast distances in much faster time. Well, I love the origin story for the telegraph. I actually live where part of the story took place. The inventor is uh, Samuel Morse, and he was a painter. And his family was based in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, which is where I live. And so he thought that he was about to just break out finally in his art. And so, because he had a huge commission and he's working on uh, this, this painting of this very famous general. And he's like, once this happened, we're just going to be rich. It's going to be great. He sends a note to his wife because uh, letter writing is the, the preferred way of writing. It's the only way of communicating back then. And he kind of sends a note to her just saying, you know, I, I long to hear from you. Two days later, he gets a letter from his father which wouldn't have happened because of response to that letter, because it took about four or five days for letters to get to and fro. And the letter from his father says that his wife had died. Be while Morris was writing this letter to his wife, she had already passed away. There was no way for him to know because letter writing was the fastest way to communicate. And it took a stagecoach, which took four or five days. So that's the seed that was planted in him, that he a wish to send messages quickly. Now, he was a painter, so he didn't really have any background in electricity, but he was on a ship where he was traveling from England to his home in America, and ships back then took weeks, like six weeks to travel. And there was one gentleman who kept talking about electricity and how fast it is, and it just dawned on uh, Morris that this might be a way to send messages. So that's kind of the origin story for the telegraph. And he, Morris got a commission from the government to build one of the first telegraph systems that was from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore, which was 40 miles, which was huge. And, you know, sending messages across that thing took minutes, which was very, very fast because before it took days. So you can imagine days to minutes. This was just super fast to those folks. And as a result of this telegraph, only one message could be sent in one direction and one message could be sent in another direction. So Morris would tell his assistant you know, when you send a message to me, make it as brief as possible. Don't use words that don't contribute to the meaning of the sentence. Condense your language is what he said to Vail. And so the, the telegraph began to fashion language. If you look at older letters from Morse before he wrote the telegraph, and then if you look at uh, recent uh, ones after the telegraph, his sentences actually started to become shorter. He would tell Vail, Look, you're adding words that don't add to the meaning. Stop using the and stop using a. Uh. Just tell me the message. Tell me the meat of the message. Now, the telegraph also became part of the newspaper infrastructure. And again, this notion of consolidating language is also important in news because they would tell their reporters, be brief. We don't want to tie up the line, but we just want to get the information across. And I'm saying this because this kind of resonates with what's going on with Twitter and the Internet, the shaping of language taking place with technology. It all began with the telegraph. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting parallel. We recently had a, a linguist on the show named Gretchen McCullough who talked about sort of how the Internet is changing language. And, you know, one of the points that she was making is that this is not just the Internet. <laughs> like these changes in language have been happening in our culture in many different ways. And we have different ways in which we use language. So, you know, formal versus informal, you know, spoken versus written, etc. And so I found it really interesting to sort of read your description of how the telegraph influenced even great writers like Hemingway. 
in ways that you know we now see there there are people who write entire novels using WhatsApp, you know, and using these <laughs> these these uh, messaging tools when you know when they can't use anything else. Like there are stories of people who are incarcerated and who you know have have written using these tools because they don't have access to any other kind of implements. Talk to us a little bit about you know Hemingway and the relationship to the telegraph. Well, Hemingway, uh, he didn't go to college. He went straight to work and he worked at a newspaper, the Kansas City Star. And when he arrived there, they gave him the sheet that said, this is how we want you to write. And they would say, you know, use short sentences, be positive. And the reason why they had this style sheet is it had to do with uh, the technologies that they used to, to write their articles. And one of them was the telegraph. And so Hemingway adopted this approach of writing with short declarative sentences based on the newspaper, which was based on the telegraph's limitations. And so he went on to inspire the rest of us. You know, whenever you take an English literature class, one of the styles, one of the, you know, the authors that you read is Hemingway. But his his way of writing came from the technology from the telegraph. So when we're told to write with short declarative sentences, it's actually the extension of the telegraph. Also, I would say that there are a couple of words that we use that are that were created from the telegraph. SCOTUS, um, POTUS, OK. These were abbreviations that were used in the time when telegraphs were the main way of communicating. And we use them all the time now. One of the other stories that really kind of hit home for me and that I thought was really interesting that also had this parallel to the modern world. I mean, I think these days we really worry about our data being misused, you know, even now with this big scandal of Zoom and, you know, we're all all of a sudden finding ourselves using Zoom all the time. And yet Zoom potentially has some, you know, practices that aren't super secure in terms of how they, uh, you know, use our data and, and, and so forth. Um, and and so one of the stories was was that of photographic materials and South African apartheid. And I wondered if you could tell that story to our listeners, you know, especially Carolyn Hunter's story, so that they get a sense that this is not a new problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I actually met Caroline Hunter a couple of times, and I'm just amazed by her. Um, so Caroline Hunter... When she was in 10th grade, she was sitting in a history class with Mr. Valder, and he would tell his students to get more involved with the civil rights movement. And, you know, they just ignored him because they're like, who is this white guy telling us it's an all black Catholic school to get more involved with the civil rights movement? This doesn't make any sense. So he gave the assignment to read, the, to read this book, Cry the Beloved Country, which is a book that de- depicts life in South Africa. And it resonated with Caroline because a lot of the things that were going on in apartheid South Africa were kind of happening in segregated New Orleans where she was living. Uh, she had to sit in the back of the bus or certain places that she could not go, certain counters that she couldn't eat at. And so this book really resonated with her. But, you know, as a teenager, she eventually forgot about this book. She was a very smart young girl who went on to study chemistry and got a job at one of the best, most beloved companies in the world, which was Polaroid, Polaroid based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, she's there, and she also meets Ken Williams, who, um, that you know, and I think they were dating at the time, and they're going to lunch. He's an artist there. He's taking photographs using Polaroid film to show how beautiful uh, their, their images are. As they're leaving, they see a bulletin board, and the bulletin board says, Department of the Mines, Republic of South Africa. Ken says to Caroline, I didn't know Polaroid was in South Africa. Caroline says to Ken, all I know is this place is a bad place for black people. 
So Ken was pretty uh, well-known and popular in Polaroid. So he had some, he, he talked to some of the management to learn a little bit about their, their role in South Africa. And management said, well, we don't really have a big role in South Africa. And if we do, it's, you know, it's very, very small. But for weeks, Caroline and Ken had been studying South Africa and how they, uh, and their apartheid system, the architects of the apartheid system, and their methods for controlling the movement of black South Africans. Each black South African had to carry a passbook. And the passbook was about 20 pages. It told officials or anybody could walk up to you and say, hey, let me see your passbook. Anybody, like a five-year-old child could say, where's your passbook? And if you don't have it, you would be jailed, do hard labor, or pay a very large fine. The, the book told people uh, where you lived, where you could go, who you could visit, and things like that. At the heart of the passbook was a picture created by Polaroid. So when these two, Ken and Caroline, found this out, they, they said, this is terrible. We, we can't be part of this oppressive regime. And so uh, they spoke to management, got no response. So they launched what they called the Polaroid Revolution, Revolutionary Workers Movement, where they started to protest, put up flyers, reached a network of activists to alert people about Polaroid's involvement in South Africa, in the, the controlling of black South Africans. As you can imagine, after a couple of years, these two got fired. But when I spoke to Caroline, she's like, well, this just motivated us to work on this full time. <laughs> and as a result of that, they got connected with Harvard students and they went to the UN and they went to various meetings. Always, whenever Edward Land, the CEO of Polaroid, was giving a talk, they were there saying, oh, by the way, Polaroid is you know, involved in the South African uh, apartheid regime. It took about seven years, but finally Polaroid removed themselves from South Africa, and this was the dismantling of the apartheid system. But I met Caroline Hunter, and she received a Rosa Parks Award from, I think it was the National Teachers Association, and, and it's so fitting. Uh, and it's one of these, again, little-known stories about two people who make a huge impact by being a pebble in a giant shoe. Yeah, I mean, that's what I, I loved. I love that story. And I love sort of the hope that it gives people who, you know, today are fighting against inequality in many different ways that, you know, just keep at it. <laughs> and, right. Uh, and and you know. do your part where you are. I mean, she was a chemistry mm -hmm. student, wasn't really particularly an activist or political. And she wouldn't have seen this, you know, if she just kept her head down. But she's like, look, I have to do something because of that book that resonated with her earlier in her life. So another story that that I found really fascinating and really tied to the materials and also tied to a woman who had a practical problem at home to solve. And I think that a lot of us now are finding ourselves in this position where, you know, our lives are changed a lot. And all of a sudden you have people, you know, making homemade masks out of, you know, um, socks and, you know, various <laughs> other materials. And it makes me wonder, like, what cool invention is going to come out of the crisis that we're currently living in? But this is Bessie Littleton. So I wondered if you could tell a story. And I, I really had no idea that Pyrex really is a, a, a completely different material from regular glass. Um, so tell us a little bit about that story. Well, I, I love the story about Bessie Littleton because Pyrex was looking for a big business. And because it was mostly men, they completely overlooked one that actually became one of their biggest businesses. So uh, Bessie Littleton and her husband, uh, JT, were living, in, living outside of Corning, and Bessie had broken one of her favorite baking dishes. And she, she, when her husband came home, she's like, you smart Alex, you talk about how fantastic glass is. Why don't you make something that won't break that I can cook with? 
And JT, you know, he loved his wife. So he went to work and he picked up a, a piece of this. He picked up a jar and sawed it off so that it would be the, the, the height that would be suitable for a pie. He brought it home and she made a cake with it. He brought the cake to work and everybody was like, this cake is fantastic. He's like, oh, by the way, this was made with a glass container. And I'm sure everybody just like spit out whatever they had in their mouth because the, the usual thinking about glass is that you should not cook with glass. It's going to break. Uh, it won't cook very well. But the cake that Bessie had made with this special glass that he uh, was created by Corning made a delectable cake. And management said, you know what? We've been looking for a new business opportunity. So then they started entering into bakeware. And so Pyrex that we have today was actually an afterthought that was created by, uh, that was brought to management's attention by Bessie Littleton. I mean, it has such a profound you know, effect that I often cook with glassware thinking that it is totally fine to cook with uh, because Pyrex essentially has changed my view of, of putting glass in an oven. And I've had the experience where like it's my cookware is broken and I'm sort of like, wait, this is glass. Why is this broken? I thought that was such an interesting thing mm -hmm. that it's not at just any glass. That's right. And it uh, it also bakes differently. Uh, so here's where I have to nerd out for a half second. Yeah, please. Uh, all right. So when you're baking with a metal tin, like making a, I'm making a loaf of bread and I have a metal tin, that bread heats up because of the air being hot and also because heat is being conducted from the metal rack into the pan. The Pyrex plate, if you put a, if you put bread into that, it's cooking another way where the invisible rays of heat are going through the glass and cooking the bread, baking the bread. So it's also cooking in a different way. And so that's why it sometimes has a different color, a much more inviting color, much more uniform because the glass is transparent. So I, I found that to be fascinating too. So, yeah, I mean, I, I thought, you know, especially today when all of a sudden m many of us are finding ourselves becoming bakers, <laughs> unbeknownst <laughs> to us. But this also changed a lot of scientific, you know, it, it allowed for a lot, a lot of science to happen. And so I wondered if you could just give us a, a look into how this particular material, Pyrex, then, you know, changed science. Well, uh, the chapter that I write in The Alchemy of Us about glass was pretty much a love letter to glass. Um, I st actually start off the book talking about how I took a glass blowing class and how I actually became fascinated with this material. And, and it's, it's, un it's unusual because I'm very clumsy, so there's no reason why I should love glass because I know things are going to break. But I've just been so enamored with how malleable it is to your imagination. You can just pull on it and make some wonderful things. And so the, the chapter I call Discover is about scientific glass. Uh, I talk about how science is based on observation and glass has been so instrumental in that. Uh, we look and we can see bigger worlds than ours with the telescope and smaller worlds with ours with the microscope, all based on glass. But it's really about having good glass that made it possible for us to make these observations and discoveries. There was a time where we didn't have good glass. You would look in a microscope and you would have uh, the blue and the red colors would separate. And it was very hard to look at things if you can't really discern what you're looking at. A very, very old microscopes, you would see that they would just have a very small pearl of a glass lens because that was as good as glass as they could get in such a, they usually, they would make glass in a small amount. And so it usually was very, very small. Now we have very big lenses because we can make better glass. So glass is fairly overlooked. It's an old material. The Egyptians made glass. So we're like, oh, everything that 
there is to be done about glass has been done. But no, uh, it we had to make a better glass so that we can see through it, so we can see through it without any kind of errors. We also needed glass that was didn't react to acids so that we can do chemical experiments. There, were, there was a time that when you put something that was acidic in an old-style glass container, the glass would actually melt. That's not good for scientific experiments. So we needed good glass, solid glass that would be impervious to acids and also that was uh, able to bend light in a way that we didn't have a separation of colors. And that took a lot of doing. And so I talk, I talk about that in the, in the Alchemy of Us. Yeah. So to remind our listeners, Anissa Ramirez's book, The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another is available at booksellers everywhere. I wonder if we could end the interview with you telling us whether there was an invention that didn't make it into your book for one reason or another, but that either you wished you had or you did some work on, or that maybe you might look to for further exploration in the future. Uh, so if I were to write The Alchemy of Us Part 2? <laughs> the sequel. <laughs> the sequel. Uh, I, I would like to spend a lot of time looking at aluminum. And, uh, and if I were to do so, that chapter would be about flying. You know, mm. aluminum, mm. that aluminum can that you drink your soda at, that you're like, oh, let me just dispose this, seems very light. Mm. Well, if you create it, if you construct it a certain way, aluminum is very, very strong. And it makes it possible for us to fly in planes because you need something very light. Yeah, so I didn't get a chance. I wanted to stick at eight because uh, well, that was plenty. But I think I would write about aluminum. Uh, it was very hard to make. It was very precious at one time. Uh, the top of the Washington Monument used to have an aluminum cap. It was more expensive than, co- uh, than gold at one point. And, but now we just throw in the recycling bin. So I would like to write a love letter to aluminum if I were to write another version of The Alchemy of Us. Awesome. Anissa Ramirez, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.